You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good evening. If you turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 21, we're in one of those more obscure passages tonight in Genesis verses 22 to the end of, of the chapter. Whereas this morning we looked at John 17, Thomas Manton, one of the great Puritans, preached 45 sermons on, on John 17, for instance. In, in, his, in the collected volumes of Thomas Manton, it, it, it takes up 487 pages, John 17. Uh, I doubt anyone has preached 45 sermons on the section we're looking at tonight. And yet it is equally the inspired word of God. That's the thing about um, what the scripture says about about itself and what we affirm is that all scripture from Genesis to Revelation is breathed out by God and and equally breathed out by God, which uh, affirms and secures its inerrancy and infallibility to us. And so even though this passage is not as well-known, it, it is important for the people of God. And my prayer is that we will see its importance tonight. Thank you, Joyful Noise, and Laura, and all those who were involved in, in preparing them. Uh, praise the Lord uh, for uh, our young people and the songs that they sing. Uh, the songs that they sing have a catechizing effect on them. It teaches them about ultimate things and and it has a transformative effect. So thank you for leading us and Adam and praise team and musicians as well. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless this portion of the service as he has already blessed us this evening as we have sung together. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that it is a word that is centered on the great high priest whose name is love that we just sang about. And Lord, even in a passage like Genesis 21, we pray that we could behold your glory in the face of this great high priest. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in the early 90s, my family purchased a quarter horse uh, to be placed on my grandmother's farm. The quarter horse's name was Red. But there was one condition. If you were going to take Red, you also had to take his best friend, whose name was Bill. Bill was a billy goat. (laughs) Kid you not. And Red would not go anywhere without Bill. They shared the same stall, and they were inseparable. Uh, and we saw that firsthand. It reminds me of a book that was written by National Geographic magazine writer named Jennifer Holland. And the name of the book is called Unlikely Friendships which documents these animals, true life stories of animals who have nothing in common, but they bond in the most unexpected ways. So in this book, there's a cat in Georgia named Lucky who became friends with a cockatoo, which I would name unlucky. (laughs) 
There's also featured in this book an elephant who is best friends with a sheep, a snake who has bonded with a hamster, a gorilla with a kitten, a hippo with a tortoise. And then there's these inexplicable uh, predators who are befriending their prey. So there's an Indian leopard who slips into a village every night and sleeps with a calf in the village. There's a lioness mother uh, who has taken in a baby oryx, which is a species of antelope. And then there it was featured a male pit bull who allows flocks of chicks to use him as a raft in a pool. And then there's the leopard who loves to snuggle with a dairy cow. There are 47 real life examples of these interspecies showing affection to one another. All unlikely friendships in the animal world. Well, perhaps, maybe one of the most unlikely friendships in the human world that you'll ever see is the friendship between Abraham, the father of the faith, the constitutional father of the Israelites, and a pagan king, the king of the Philistines, Abimelech. That's what we see in our passage. But this isn't the first time that Abraham and Abimelech have interacted with each other. Remember back in Genesis 20, uh, they had an interaction. And, and based on that interaction, it would be understandable as we come to our text if Abimelech did not respect Abraham. If you'll remember, Abraham had... had told a lie about Sarah, that, that this was his sister, and, and out of fear that they would kill him, he almost compromised her, and, and Abimelech actually took Sarah, and God brought judgment, severe judgment on Abimelech and his clan. Well, when it was uncovered, Here's what Abraham said back to Abimelech, and he was less than gracious. Back in chapter 20, verse 11, if you want to flip there, just to remind yourself, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Not real gracious words to the king. And then chapter 20, verse 12, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So a half-truth masquerading as a full truth is always a non-truth. And, and so there was plenty that Abimelech could have held against Abraham. But remember how that account ended. Again, back in chapter 20, verse 14, Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. 
It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. And then Grace also went out to Abimelech. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all of their wounds. Well, in the second half of chapter 21, Abimelech and Abraham encounter one another again in a place that will be named Beersheba. As we open up here, it's not named Beersheba yet, but by the time we conclude chapter 21, this place will be called Beersheba. And this would be Abraham's home base uh, for quite some time. In fact, even as late as chapter 22, verse 19, Abraham is still in Beersheba. And, and the Lord, here's how important Beersheba would be. He would confirm his promises to Isaac in this place called Beersheba. Really, Beersheba was premium real estate. That's why this chapter is important to us because it was first important to the original audience. Uh, what, what, what's being confirmed here is why Abraham has this particular real estate. It was an important crossroad to Egypt and it was the geographic center in the region known as the Negev. And so, in, in the future, as far as Israel's inheritance is concerned, this would be considered the southernmost part of their inheritance. And so, this passage is establishing why it belongs to Abraham, why it belongs to Israel. Remember, these passages were first intended for an original audience before they can be applied to us. And so this is a phrase you'll often see in the Old Testament, from Dan to Beersheba. And so Dan, and I've been to Dan, it's the very northern part uh, of, of the land. And then Beersheba would be the most southern part of the land. And so when they would write from Dan to Beersheba, that's kind of a merism, speaking about the in, entire geographic area, Israel's inheritance. And so this chapter, or this section of the chapter, tells us how Abraham was enabled to settle peacefully there, all right? But in the process, we're going to see some important principles for us as well. And the first thing we see, starting in verse 22, is that the nations, and I say the nations because God promised to bless the nations through Abraham, and we need to think like that as we read the Old Testament, all right? And so the nations recognize God's presence with Abraham. Look with me in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army. And I think he has the commander of his army there because even though there's some kind of respect for Abraham, he doesn't fully trust him. We're going to see that in just a moment. And he said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. 
And so Abraham was residing there. He had moved from Gerar, uh, which is about 25 miles uh, north. And it appears that Abimelech has dominion over this area. It's the area at this point um, where the Philistines inhabit. In fact, this passage is the first time we see the word Philistines mentioned in the Bible. Abimelech is the, is the king of the Philistines. And so he has dominion over this, but he is struck by the evident hand of God, which is on Abraham. Now, most certainly he had experienced that truth when Abraham had interceded for him and God relented from the judgment that was on Abimelech and his clan. Remember, uh, he closed the wombs because he had unwittingly taken someone's wife. And, and Abraham intercedes and God opens up the wounds. Abimelech was very aware of that, okay? Also, um, he had come, the Lord had come to Abimelech in a dream concerning Abraham and Sarah. And then he had to be very aware that they had had a child out of time, if you will. So he is very um, sure that God is present. God is with Abraham. In fact, you're going to see this later in chapter 26 when he says the same thing to Isaac. In, in chapter 26, verse 28, I can see God is with you. And then it'll be noted of Jacob later on in Genesis Chapter 30, verse 27, God is with you. And then it'll be noted of Joseph later than that in chapter 39, God is with you. And in light of the fact that Abimelech saw that God was with Abraham, he has a request. And here's the request, verse 23. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. You know, it's quite remarkable that he's asking Abraham, who is clearly one whose God's presence is with, but he's asking him here to deal kindly with him, to deal honestly with him. Do not deal falsely with me. Now, I think it's quite intriguing that, that one of the promises made to the people of God in Zechariah's day speaks about this very idea of God's presence being with the Messiah who would come from the seed of Abraham. And I believe Zechariah is picking up the language of Genesis chapter 21. So for instance, in Zechariah 8 verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days... Ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So Zechariah is echoing the words here, and I think a good question for all of us to ask is, could unbelievers, could pagans see that the presence of God is with you. That the grace of God is on you. Are you distinct from the world? Are you in the world but not of the world? Now, God is with us. He is with us as believers through the seed of Abraham. Okay, Christ dwells in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And one of the chief ways that God opens up doors for evangelism with the Abimelechs that we meet on the way is that they see that something is distinctive about us. We speak differently. We think differently. We have different priorities. We have different motivations we walk blamelessly. That's a question. They, they behold Emmanuel, God with us. And even when you think about the church gathered, there's something to be said about that. Did you know that when the church gathers, that's an evangelistic means by God himself? That's why uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book on preaching and preachers says, when, when God's people gather, it's good for God's people to gather. Because when, when an, uh, an unbeliever comes into an empty room, he just assumes God's not here. He's not here. But when he comes into a room that is filled with eager and zealous worshipers, he says, God must be here. That's exactly what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever outsider enters and they do every service, you need to know that. When you want to stay home because you're tired, remember unbelievers are here. They are coming. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And so there's this individual aspect where God, our, our pagans should be able to look at us and go, God is with this person. And then there's the corporate aspect. God should, unbelievers should be able to come into our worship service and say, God is here. Look at these people worship. Look at the vitality of these people. But let's also consider this from the civic level as well. After all, Abimelech is the king. He's the king and has dominion over this area. This reminds us 
And we don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but believers should be model citizens. We should be so upstanding and so useful in the community that civic rulers find it a matter of good policy to encourage biblical religion. Now, what I saw in the COVID year, and I can be really prophetic here because I wasn't at Lakeview during the COVID year, um, but what I saw online with Christians was an embarrassment. I saw Christians who were not good citizens. I saw Christians online, and I'm not thinking of anybody in this room, but it's possible that someone in this room is guilty of this. They were slandering the government. They were criticizing the government. They were using snarky language about the government. And to me, I thought that is a horrible witness. Imagine if the Apostle Paul had used snarky language like, Nero is a zero. <laughs> you don't see that in Paul's writings. What do you see? He says, let supplications and prayers and intercessions and even thanksgivings be made for all people and for kings and those who are in high positions. And so this is a reminder that we're called to be good citizens as a witness to the Abimelechs of the world. With that said, there is an implicit rebuke here in this passage of Abraham for his previous actions. So Abimelech recognizes clearly God is with him, and yet he senses the need to say, don't deal falsely with us. He sees Abraham as a mixed bag. So he's a man of faith. I've seen God answer his prayers. I've seen God move through this man. I've seen God bless this man. And yet also I have seen this man lie to my face. I have seen his hypocrisy. And so it's tarnished in some ways Abraham's witness. You think about our college students who are going out into the, the college world. You're going to be in a world of paganism. I know that because I was in that world as well. And the, the fact is, you're not going to win your fellow students by looking like them. You're going to win them by being different, not weird, but different, different. There is a difference. And so Abimelech says in really some ironic kind of mixed language, he says, I know God's with you, but don't lie to me anymore. That must have just been deeply convicting to Abraham because Abraham just responds without any kind of defense. Verse 24, and Abraham said, I will swear. He's got to swear at this point for him to believe him. 
But before that happens, however, Abraham has a matter of his own to raise. And that brings us to this covenant oath that's going to be taken. Um, and this really establishes why Abraham can live peacefully in this region. Verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech. And so Abimelech reproved Abraham. <laughs> Don't deal falsely with me again. And now Abraham is reproving Abimelech. Again, these are unlikely friends about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. So clearly it was a well that had been dug up by or dug up by Abraham and his family, his clan, and it had been taken over by Abimelech's men and Abraham's people were not being able to drink from this well. Now, that's not a big deal to us um, where water is so plentiful. But for a semi-nomad, especially in a region with little water available, this is a matter of life and death. Finding wells or finding water and digging wells was not only time consuming, consuming, it was also a very expensive endeavor. In fact, that's why wars, many wars have been fought by desert tribes over wells of water. It seems so simplistic to us, but have you ever been in a situation where you were thirsty and you had no access to water? Imagine living that like that for days and weeks on end. There was a kingdom a couple of centuries before uh, the time of Jesus called the Nabataean kingdom. Uh, it's an interesting uh, group. They were Arabs and, and they were able to travel well through the desert and, and, and control the trade routes of the region. Uh, and here's the reason. Whenever they were under a threat, they could retreat into the Negev, the very region that we're reading about here. They could retreat into that, that uh, region and no one would follow them. And here's why. They were geniuses at digging subterranean wells water wells, collecting rainwater, and then covering them up so that no one could find them but them. And they had ways that they would signal that a well was here. And so no one would follow them into the Negev. That shows you how, how hard it was. Water is life in the desert. And that's what's happening here. They're, they're taking Abraham's wells. Well, verse 26 Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. He's pleading innocence. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Now, you say, why is that important to us? Well, it was important to the original audience. This reminds us again that this was written to 
an audience that would be making their way into the promised land. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Bimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. This, this is my well. Therefore, and this is where it was named, that place was called Beersheba because there was both of them swore, because there both of them swore an oath. And so in a play on words, maybe you got a footnote in your Bible, he calls this place Beersheba because which can mean the well of seven or the well of the oath. Uh, the word for seven and the word for oath come from similar roots. And so he calls this place either the well of the seven, as in the seven ewe lambs, or the well of the oath. And Abraham, in turn, worships God. That brings us to the last part of this passage. He worships the everlasting God. Here's another name for given to us. Verse 32. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Of course, that covenant would have been cut in blood as all covenants are. The lambs would have been used for that. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines even though this still is the land of the Philistines. We'll see that in just verse 34. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. I want to close here with just a couple of points. Again, this is an obscure passage. It's not probably the passage you'd preach in view of a call but it's the word of God. Amen. And so we can learn from this passage. First of all, the importance of living a life of integrity, a life of blamelessness before the Abimelechs in our lives, before a watching world. How can we witness to these Abimelechs if we're not blameless? It's hard to undo the poison that enters a relationship, the poison of deceit and lies. That's true of marriage. Let me just submit this to you. If you have some kind of secret life right now, you need to repent of that. If there are people here who are watching pornography or are doing illicit things that your spouse doesn't know about, you need to repent of that. Uh, there was a pastor in the, in the area recently who had a, a secret life and it got exposed. God forbid what happened to him after that. But we cannot have a witness when we lack integrity in our relationships. I'll just give you this example. Heather wasn't expecting this, but when we were in Nashville, there was a a girl that befriended, befriended uh, Heather that was on staff at our church. And she really pursued Heather and wrote her letters. 
And, and Heather was really opening herself up to this, this girl. And then one day, Heather was going through letters she had received when she was in her group. She was cleaning up some things. We were about to get married, so she was packing things. And she came across the stack of letters. Now, keep in mind, this girl had told Heather, I've never seen your group before. I've never heard them. I would love to hear them sometime. And, and so Heather was making plans to try to invite her out, maybe on the road or something like that. Well, she found these stack of letters that some fans had written, and she recognized the handwriting. There was a fan, a crazy fan, who had written innumerable letters to Heather that turned out to be this girl on staff at our church. And I'll never forget that day. Heather could not stop crying. The betrayal. And, and she confronted the girl. And the girl just did not own it as she should have. And it, it really devastated their relationship. This passage reminds us the importance of integrity and being above reproach in our relationships. That may not be the main point of Genesis 21, but it's an important point. Be above reproach with your spouses. Be above reproach with your children. Be the man, be the woman that you want your sons, you want your daughters to be. And be above reproach in your work relationships. It's, it's, I think, being taught here in this passage. Remember, Israel is called to be a light to the nations. And I think that's one of the things that Moses is teaching them as they go into the land. Don't be like Abraham, who tarnished his witness with Abimelech and made the light of Yahweh really eclipsed that light in many ways. The second, and I think we'll close here, we continue to see the principle established in God's covenant with Abraham that the blessing that will come to the nations will come through Abraham. You never get away from that principle, even when you get to the New Testament. Indeed, centuries later, there will be one from the seed of Abraham who will be sitting by a well. And there will be a Samaritan woman. The Samaritans were half Jew, but they were also half Gentile. And she came to that well. And this one from the, the seed of Abraham, whose name is Jesus, wanted to talk to her about a well of water, but a different kind of water. And here's what he said to her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with 
and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That was the water Abraham was concerned with, but not Jesus, the greater one from Abraham. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And interestingly, this water will not be secured by seven ewe lambs, but it would be secured by one lamb, the Lamb of God, the one we read about tonight in Revelation 5. And by the blood of that lamb, a covenant oath would be secured. The blood of the eternal covenant. But it won't just be secured for Abraham and his family. It will be secured for the seed of Abraham. It will be secured for Jews, for Samaritans, and all the Gentiles. That is the living water that is promised by the one greater than Abraham. The one that no one has ever had to say, don't deal falsely with me. The one who came perfectly to do the will of the Father. That is the one we worship. That is the one in whom Abraham points. The Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. One of the ways we overcome our tendency to be deceitful, to be those who tell half-truths, half-lies, to lack blamelessness is because our hearts are not enthralled as they should be towards the one in whom Abraham points. Abraham was the greatest of all men, and yet he needed a Messiah just like we do, and we have one in the Lord Jesus Christ who doesn't just secure water for himself. He secures water, living water, for all those who would drink by his own price that he paid, his death on the cross. So great a salvation for so great a Savior we have. And may, Lord, those truths meditating on the glory, your glory in the face of your son. Tune our hearts to sing your praise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Adam and the musicians come forward. It's not your typical evangelistic text, right? It was written to believers, written to covenant people. But remember, the gospel thread runs all the way through the Bible. And this passage reminds us that Abimelech needed a savior. Abraham needed a savior. And Abraham points us to the savior who came to offer us a better water, a, a living water that we can drink and never thirst again. Are you thirsty this morning? Come to the living water as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. 
Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.